0: I'm done. I, I am just so, so fricking done. If that's you too, this episode is for you. I talk to an expert about how we can recover, how we become more resilient, how we can support others around us and how we can create a culture where it's okay to not be okay. Stay tuned. I'm Daryl Black. And if we haven't met before, I take 30 plus years in crisis leadership and a decade in project management, and I help leaders make a bigger impact. So let's get started. So I'm really excited to introduce my next next guest or more specifically have my guest introduce himself here because as we've been talking about over the last few weeks, few months, the the back to work was the future of the workplace look like, particularly as we re- we're recording this. But certainly there's a we're coming out of a pandemic, presumably, uh, but what we're going to be talking about will supersede and transcend pandemic and and realizing that as leaders and leaders of leaders, there is a lot of stress and a lot of strain that is put on individuals, because not only do we have to look after ourselves, but we're also looking after a team or a team of teams. So I want to reach out to a friend of mine, Jeff Sitch, uh, who has a very unique background with regard to looking at mental health and mental well-being. And much like myself, a background in crisis and crisis response, but also a strong Um, familiarity with the corporate world as well, which we'll talk about. So it's a perfect blend for this audience and this this conversation. So Jeff, over to you. Just give the audience an idea of who you are and, and a little bit of your background.
1: Well, um From, I'll just start, uh, from high school I really wanted to go into business and the business background, (coughs) pardon me, business background and and that was my avenue until age 30 I went to university for the first time and decided that I really wanted to pursue my passion of becoming a psychologist and uh, I can say that I, I think that what I learned from sort of being in the business, that corporate culture maturing, and then going into um, psychology uh, probably probably has really aided me in helping understand, relate to people, and be practical in some of the things that uh, we take from theory and put into practice with. You know, I think translation sometimes is lacking, but making sure that what, what we, I do as a psychologist really translates over into sort of operational and realistic expectations. So at age 30 I went and became a, a psychologist, a, did a weird degree, I have a master's in science in psychiatry actually, and um, then became a registered psychologist in the province of Alberta with a focus on clinical diagnosis assessment. And then, strangely, moving over into dealing with first responder, first responder organizations. Um, Again, a type of business and and organization that, that lent over the information that I had really neatly. And really talking about how, as organizations, do they support the mental health of people who, by the nature of their work, put themselves in people's worst days and are impacted by it. And helping shift the culture uh, corporately using sort of the psychological principles of mental health resiliency and Then um, what I am just really passionate about and I sort of said this to you earlier Daryl, I want to put myself out of business um, I, I want to teach, to, to reach especially first responders and their leaders about how to keep their you know their their crews healthy uh, on the job and how for them to also stay healthy. So um, I, I created the Alberta Critical Incident Provincial Network which is a peer-led, peer-driven, um, really mental health resiliency crisis response, uh, peer-led by first responders for first responders and really integrating the standard operating procedures, the policies, updating and, and training leaders as to sort of how to how to not not lead this but to support it And get behind it so that really the peers help support peers and I think that we've really seen a transformation in Alberta alone in the last several years we've trained over 2,000 peers in frontline first responders as well as hospital based teams Uh, we've uh, trained multiple leaders within those organizations as well to support the peers doing the peer support and um, we have at any given time about 400 first responders um, public safety personnel willing to answer a phone call for those uh, brothers and sisters of theirs that that might be in crisis so um in, in a way i would like to say that I, i'm i have a not-for-profit society that is that is an organization that is populated by uh, the the peers are my boss they tell me what they need from me and, and how to go about doing it and during this pandemic um, holy smokes have we been uh, really challenged in you know our, our view of the world and how we do things in this world and and how do how do we transition to not lose the support that people need more so in, 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 in these times in these last two years.
0: Well, and so a couple of things resonate there. One, you were a mature student. So you were the guy at the beginning, start at the front of the class that actually read everything that everybody else disliked. Okay. So first <laughs> of all, I wanted to be clear on that.
1: <laughs> I was also the oldest person in the class too. So I had to sit close because I needed to see the board.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and secondly, um, you know, I, I'm really curious to talk to you because I'm a, a believer that crisis is the ultimate textbook for leadership. And by that, I mean, the the issues and challenges that are confronted by a leader during crisis are, are such that, you know, if you're not communicating well, you're going to see it. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're going to see it very, very quickly, you know, relative to in a, you know, period of time. And also culturally, Jeff, Some a lot of people even right off the bat are like, ah, that's emergency services, or you know what, my culture uh, uh, that would never float in my workplace. As we go through this conversation, and and I would just offer up to the audience to keep an open mind because Jeff and myself, to a certain extent, live in a culture that is actually almost in some ways actively against you know, mental health and well being and things like that. So you know, and we'll talk about some of those stigmas, because they're very, very strong. And so we can definitely apply those lessons in from fire halls and whatnot, and go into the corporate boardroom. So So Jeff, you know, maybe I'm uh, maybe a good place to start is, maybe for me, I'm a a really great avatar for this in that, you know, 2020 things in the course of a week shut down in terms of my business and speaking and facilitation and all those other things. Uh, my mom and dad were just due to go into a, a home. My mom's got dementia, nonverbal. My dad is is on his way there. COVID hit and we weren't, they weren't going to the homes. And so, you know, I spent a whole year essentially looking after my parents, my aging parents. And then I've got, you know, business concerns. I've got some, you know, relationship challenges. I've got all this stuff and then things ramp up and start to get better, but they're not better. And now I'm exhausted and I don't know what to do. And I'm tired all the time, and all of those other things. And I don't know if you've heard it or felt it as well, but the, the kind of the, the war cry now is like, I'm just effing done i 'm just so done, and i 've heard that so many times and So, what other things have you seen in your experience that leaders or individuals are, are feeling as they come out of you know prolonged vigilant in a lot of cases because we 're not talking acute right and that 's the difference yeah. right this isn 't a particular incident or anything it, it's it's an, it's a it's a combination a slow burn if you will so what are some people what are some signs and symptoms of things that you are experiencing a slow burn or burnout that that really can help the audience.
1: Well, you know, the the old language for this was burnout, um, but we call it cumulative stress now. And and cumulative stress is that prolonged, unrelenting stress that goes on and on and on. And it really is the most dangerous type of stress. Um, It's the type of stress that starts to impact our, our physical health as well as our mental health negatively. And people have a tendency when they go through a crisis to focus on solving the crisis. But we've been focused on a crisis we can't solve. What we have to do is really manage our way through it until the crisis really ends itself with regards to, to the virus. And, and given that, first of all, for leaders who are used to solving problems, I think that uh, we've, they've been presented with problems they can't solve, but they've had to react to the byproducts of it. And so, for example, and, and, you know, again, I have elderly parents as well. Don't, don't tell my mom I called her elderly. But, um, you know, which um, that, that, that worries. So not only do we have this crisis where we have this responsibility for people that we're leading, but we're not immune from the crisis in our personal life. That we have to uh, answer the other call to, that we have a responsibility that uh, goes beyond in our personal life. And, and I think, um, you know, crises have been thought as, as a sort of a sprint, and for, for many people, it's been a marathon. And I think that uh, the analogy that I gave somebody was this it's like uh, running a marathon and passing all the water tables, not picking up the glass of water to rehydrate because you don't think you have time. And, and, a, and a literally, you know, dying of thirst. And you didn't think that, you would ha- that, that the, the race would go on this long, so you're like, no, I don't need that, I don't need that, I don't need that, which is really about the self-care. The other thing about leaders is, you know, I, I think leaders sometimes feel that they have to look after others, but they actually don't understand that modeling the self-care will encourage people to actually follow that to be able to look after themselves, to be able to take that time away, to be able to recognize that, yeah, I have a life outside of, of this organization and responsibilities of kids and parents and, my God, now I'm teaching my kids because schools are closed and, and all those things. So, I, I think that what we're really seeing is that, that cumulative stress, that unrelenting stress where we're starting to see huge impacts on, on sleep. Um, people either completely exhausted and, and can 't stay awake or they're they 're so unable to sleep that, that again it just wears and wears and wears i think um a lot of people have sort of created some unhealthy coping habits that otherwise wouldn't have developed. We're seeing statistics that say, you know, the, the, the use of alcohol has gone up immensely. I guess the government can tell that by all the taxes they're collecting uh, from the liquor stores on it. But, uh, you know, so, so we know that that's happening. And then we also see the number of people that are presenting with um, medical issues related to some of the coping strategies um, that we've you know, used for the last two years. So, uh, we see everything from changes in some personalities. Um, a lot of people say, you know, my fuse isn't as long if, if I even have a fuse anymore. Uh, the things that used to, you know, just roll off my back now sort of really stick and sting. And I, I'm just not dealing with the people, um, my family or, or my work family the, the way that I, that I want to or, or used to or that they're used to as well. I think the other thing is, um, you know, usually I would say leaders have an, an, eye, uh, an eye on an end goal. Um, but here we don't even know which direction the goal is. And, and just when we think that we're playing down the field the right way, um, the, 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 the goal changes directions. And so this whole uncertainty has just really, really caused people to, I would say, be in this cumulative stress, unrelenting crisis. And then I think the, the final thing is that um, for for a lot of individuals, um, the changes in, in you know isolation and quarantine and, and how we communicate Um, the reliance on Zoom, Teams, all these different uh, social media, it really has disconnected people. The time that we need to support each other most, I guess the advancement of technology has allowed us to continue doing what we're doing, but it actually has done us a disservice in that it has really disconnected people coming together and and being in proximity to actually receive and and offer support and I know that many people are just saying oh I can't rem- I can't wait till the day I can give a hug or get a hug or or you know feel a touch or hold a hand or handshake and you know I, I'm up in Fort McMurray doing a bunch of training right now and you walk into a room to greet people and you're like. Oh, like what? What's the what? What are we doing today with regards to, you know, are we supposed to get this close together? Are we supposed to, you know, bump arms or whatever? So, I think that um, you know we we are creatures where routine gives us uh, safety, and our routines are being completely disrupted. And just as we get them set, our routines are disrupted again, which means that our body and brain never perceives a sense of safety. So we're always in survival mode. And I think that's really the biggest impact that I'm seeing.
0: Man, you you know what? Any one of those things you've talked about, we could unpack for an hour or days for that matter. And I, I think a big part of it is, one, the unknown biologically is something that stresses, stresses us out. Like That's just kind of how we're wired. We're, we have a, a negativity bias. We have a need for a locus of control. Which gives us a sense whether it be real, a real, real control or not, that's up for debate, but at least trying to do something about it. You know if we're feeling stressed, we can do a problem-focused strategy and those sorts of things. And, and the, the other thing too, I think, Jeff, is that you, you hit on it in that you know speaking for myself. Uh, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You could compartmentalize work in a home. You know what? That's an office problem. And, you know, to a certain extent, I'm, you know, I try not to bring it home and all that other stuff. And yeah, that, that works as a strategy a little bit. But, you know, as both of those cups fill up, you know, trying that that, that that cross-contamination is bound to happen. And we're seeing this merging of work and all of those other things. And so I'm curious you know, even things like, like memory, you know, so many people are like, man, I can't remember a fricking thing anymore, you know, like, and and I know for me, my mom's got dementia for crying out loud. So it, holo, like red flag. So it, you know, a lot of working memory is being used up by this constant vigilance and, and things like that. And so I'm curious, Jeff, we know that something's not right. So if I know something is not right, what are some first steps that we can take to recover? Or, or you know, f- let's assume that we know that, you know, things aren't 100%. So we've kind of got that awareness phase and stage done. Yeah. What's something that we can do first step or a couple steps for ourselves personally, because, you know, we, we can't fill other people's cups up if ours is empty kind of thing. So yeah. w- where do we start?
1: Well, I, I sort of use the lifeguard analogy, you don't jump into the water to save somebody who's going to drown you. Um, so it really sort of says, and I'll go back to, you know, a resilient leader is a, is a leader that, that leads from example. And the self-care example will allow the people underneath you to also care for themselves. So so what does that look like? Well, sometimes it's just really basic. Um, uh, turn, off, turn off your electronic devices for a period of time. Disconnect. Um, during that disconnection, focus on something that doesn't draw energy away from you, but actually sort of replenishes that energy. Um, I think that maybe another factor, at least, uh, where, where I live and where you live, it's been a brutally cold winter where just getting out and going for those walks and, and now the ice on the, on the, the roads and the streets, um, have really sort of blocked some of the, the basic things that we could do. Um, but I think that what we know is, you know, getting some exercise will burn off some of the stress hormones that, that are coursing through our, our veins and some of the hormonal changes that affect how we think and form memories and, and you know, uh, sort of emotional reactivity and, and sleep and appetite and all those sorts of things. I can't overemphasize how, and I hate calling it exercise. I'd like to re- take that back and say, get your body in motion. Um, just do something about get your body in motion, and we know that if you do that for you know twenty to twenty five minutes a day, just you know don 't increase your cardiovascular don 't put more strain on it, but just get your body in motion. it burns off those those stress hormones and, and can sort of help reset the, the next thing is um, and again you know social supports we are social creatures, and we have all sorts of research now on the the effects of disconnecting on depression and anxiety and all these different things reconnect safely. reconnect to your supports and, um, you know, and don't necessarily share all the stresses that you're going through, but, you know, um, share those, those other aspects of life that are going on out there. Um, We're social beings and and that is so important. Um, The other part is, you know, uh, when we're going through stressful times and I I sort of say I've got my COVID-19 but now it's been two years. So I figure like I'm 19 times two for my weight gain. Um, You know, it's those salty, carby fatty, you know, sugary foods that when we're stressed, we want quick energy to get us along. But what we don't realize is that we're actually sort of defeating ourselves. So I like to sort of say, you know, eat, eat garbage, you're gonna feel like garbage. If you give your body what it needs, nutritional um, aspects and, and you know, um, vitamin rich foods, that your body can use that to repair some of the damage um, that the stress is doing, the cumulative stress is doing. Don't underestimate the power of water, by the way. Stress is immensely dehydrating. So rehydrate, rehydrate, rehydrate. It helps flush out those those stress hormones. And you know what? You said something earlier, and you sounded like a psychologist, the negative brain bias. Um, I tell people, find three things a day you're grateful for. Mm-hmm. And if you can't find them, create them. And so I was uh, texting with a client of mine today who said, you know, I found two of them and I can't find the third one. I'm going to find it. Go create it. So she said, I'm baking cookies with my kid. So she created it. And so don't wait for these things to happen. Create these things. Give yourself those opportunities to to you know cope with the stress and, and find the things you're grateful for and find those opportunities to find some joy. And it's like the, the saying of, you know, find the, the silver lining in the gray cloud. It's there. Sometimes we just have to be willing to look for it. Those, you know, those are it, some it, of the basics,
0: and, and it's important too because a lot of times people are like, you know, an attitude of gratitude and woo woo, and get out in nature and all that, and they're like, ah, ain't got no time for that, or that's like some spiritual mumbo jumbo. But yeah. I think what, and sleep, right? Sleep is for the weak, um, mm. and oh, lack of sleep. Really
1: weak. I must be really, really weak then because I really love my sleep.
0: (laughs) You know, and and here's the thing, and and you're talking about really a whole body approach to mental wellness. It's not just about the one, you know, organ, bunch of fatty tissue in your, in your cranium. It's, it's, it's approaching it holistically and, uh, and in sleep to our point, I'm so glad that it has been getting the accolades at least recently that it really really deserves because the more science that and and all of these things are science-based that you're talking about here this isn't just like hey let's just throw something at a wall and stick this is we're talking about physiological neurological changes in your brain that have been under been happening for a couple of years and now yeah. It's not going to recover overnight. So what are some th- other things, you know, like around sleep and, and uh, uh, how about let's just talk about sleep? Because, again, we yeah. could talk for two hours on that. But oh, what's absolutely. your perspective on that?
1: Well, number one, I think we're we're sleep starved uh, as a society. I think that uh, everything is go, go, go. I think that what that does is it generates a brain that goes, goes, goes. And, and um, what I find is that the busier I am during the day, um, the more my brain is going to occupy me at night when my, when my body is at rest. It's sort of like, okay, now I get your attention because you've been so busy. Um, so, I, so I think that you know, being able to pay attention to you know, when you can't sleep, what's stopping it? So there's three really common factors that stop sleep. So number one, worrying about sleep. Um, so are you doing the countdown? Oh, I'm not going to get to sleep. How many hours do I have left? So the anxiety about not sleeping is actually one of the number one causes of poor sleep. Turn your clock around. doesn't matter what time you wake up, fall back to sleep. Don't look at the clock. So the, the anxiety about sleep, number one, don't worry about it. You'll get as much as you need and you've never gone without sleep your whole life. You'll eventually get it. So why are we worrying about it? Um, The next thing about sleep is really we're so bad at doing things that actually interfere with with our sleep process. Um, What time we eat foods, what we consume, you know, all of those different things. And and it's being able to say we need to sort of get into the sleep cycle, which is we prepare our body to invite sleep. And um, I really, really like the way that um, there's an author by the name of um, uh, Matthew Walker who's written a book called Why We Sleep. And I love what he says in his book, if you read this book and fall asleep, that's the ultimate compliment that you've given me. And he says, don't read this book in order, read the chapters that you're struggling with right now. And if people knew what caffeine does to sleep and what it does to wakefulness, I think that uh, you, you'd start to cut down. Um, so what time you eat food, um, it affects your metabolism, the, the amount of light that you have, the, the, the temperature of the room. Um, and then also, um, how many of, I'm wondering how many people listening to us are actually, um, you know, laying in bed with their phone next to them or, you know, as it buzzes and goes off. And I got to say, I'm guilty of that, but I have an excuse. I'm on call 24 hours for certain (laughs) days of the week. Right. So I can always justify stuff that isn't healthy. And, um, you know, I, I wish it was that important that people need to get a hold of me 24 hours a day. It's rare, but you know, we convince ourselves that I've got to have that phone just in case and, uh, that disrupts. Why is it in there? Um, and I think also a routine going to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time. Um, and if you don't sleep, get out of bed, go and try to reset and then go back to sleep. Don't, don't make your bed become associated with not sleeping. If you're not sleeping, get out of bed, go and reset, go wrap yourself in a blanket, find a warm place and, you know, try to bring on sleep and then go back to bed when you're ready to sleep. We we really want to condition ourselves to think of of the bed and bedroom as sort of being the place to go to sleep, and we do so many things. um, You know, by by, you know, the the hotel I'm in is like a 56 inch TV at the end of the bed. You know, so let's turn that on because that's really going to be good for my sleep. Um, So I I think that it's just making some some proper choices choices, and and if your sleep, you know, if you're not getting a solid, you know, good seven eight hours of sleep, you got to ask yourself what you're doing to contribute to that because that's what you have the power over and you'll start to see changes in time um, to to the amount of sleep. And the other part about sleep and maybe my pet peeve is we're just too quick to default to taking a pill. And I think people are confusing getting rest with getting restorative sleep. The type of sleep that you really want to get is the type that helps your body rebuild from the wear and tear and the damage that's been exerted on it that previous day from the, the time you woke up to the time that you're going to bed. And if we understood the difference between resting, and restorative sleep, I think, and he, and he started to sort of see, um, you know, the the impact on 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 our health, on on aging, and, and all those different things. I think we'd all really strive to get a lot more restorative sleep. We'll live longer. We'll be happier. We uh, won't age as quickly. Um, so there 's so many principles, and if you really want to find what I think is you know uh, a really good, easy read and really impactful is i can 't think of any book better right now than matthew walker why we sleep
0: okay that 's great we'll we 'll put a link in the description for this and i i i don 't want to lose sight of the fact that at least for me, I always thought of sleep as a uh, way to physically rest and restore. But I think now we're seeing, yeah, that's a big part of it. But in this context in particular, it's it's a way for, you know, the brain actually flushes toxins during the evening. It consolidates memories that you talked yeah. about there. And it solves problems as well. And it, it's yeah. it's uh, it's actually a critical part. And I have an aura ring. So it's my middle finger. So I'll be very sensitive to just showing that, But you know, and, and, you know, there's different schools of thought on the accuracy, but at the very least, it, it just raises the awareness around, you know what, you, okay. there are some things that you can be doing. And that leads me to another, uh, uh challenge as well, Jeff, in that, you know, as you're going through the list of, of items, it can be overwhelming for people. So I'd also yeah. like to implore folks to, you don't have to be Tony Robbins in a week. You know, you just take, I would suggest, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts as a professional. I'm just, you know, I don't even play one on TV, but just pick one small thing a week or every two weeks or whatever it looks like and and just start that incremental taking control of your life back. And is that something that you would also recommend, Jeff?
1: Absolutely. I see people that sort of say, oh, I made a list of all the things that I need to do to get healthy again. And I got overwhelmed by the list. And, you know, took a nap, whatever, whatever, or or ate a donut or whatever it was. And I'm like, hold on, what do you mean you're making a list? For me, what I put on the list is three things I need to do, two things I want to do. Only when I do those five things do I go back and revisit putting more things on the list. We we overwhelm ourselves with lists and guess what? Making lists is on your list of things to do, um, but you never get beyond that. So the first thing that I would say is pick really a need-to-do, here's what I would say, and people confuse this all the time, a need-to-do is something your survival depends upon. Your sleep is something your survival depends upon. Uh, The amount of exercise you get is your survival depends upon it. And I would say that uh, food and or social interaction, your survival depends upon it. Um, We confuse that though with the want-to-do's and all of those things that we let go of the need-to-do's in order to accomplish the want-to-do's because they somehow um, give us a short-term sense of feeling good, but they don't necessarily contribute to a long-term sense of of well-being. So I would challenge people to sort of say, make a list, start with one thing you need to do. When you've mastered that, add a second thing you need to do and master that. Add a third thing that you need to do and master that and stick with it for about a week or two and then start to add some of those need-to-do's. And I think that it's about creating habits and routines. We are, as I said, um, creatures of routine and creatures of habit. And it doesn't take too long to, um, ch- to, to add to our routine so it just becomes almost second nature. But you have to make the commitment to start. But don't make the commitment just to make a, a list that has start these things on it. Yeah. Start small with just one thing on the list. Your survival depends upon it. Second thing third thing. Those are your needs. Then move to some of those wants. Uh, I,
0: I love that. And then that also starts starts that locus of control cycle again, too, taking your power back. And and uh, also, I think it's important, too, when you're starting... You know, words matter. Linguistics matter with regard to need or want or I'm stressed. Uh, uh, and framing it in, in such a way that you're having feelings of stress. You are not stress. And, and and that's part of that separation that you are not your feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're experiencing these kinds of feelings. And so again, we could talk all night about just linguistics and words matter and and how your subconscious is, it's literal. If you say you need it, that's, that's what your subconscious says. And would you you agree?
1: Yeah. I love this quote, which is whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you will be right. It really is the power of what you tell yourself about a situation, or or your commitment to to doing those things on the list, will determine actually whether or not you do it. Um, nothing else. So people feel like the world is so out of control, and what they don't realize is that they've given up so much control because of what they tell themselves. And you know, it, again, sort of that old. You know, Winston Churchill, you know, we have, we have met the enemy and he is us, and that really is what we tell ourselves is what will defeat us, but what we tell ourselves will also um, help us win this battle and get through, and, and it is that, that, that attitude that we bring um, that really does make the difference. We're waiting for the world to change. Well, guess what? You have the power to change your attitude about the world. In some small way, and that will change your experience of the world. Will the change that will change that commitment to that thing you need to do, and so recognize and seize and, and really grasp onto what is within your control. It's far more than you be than, than you're than your than perhaps you are telling yourself right now.
0: I, I love that, and you just need to read Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's uh, if 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 you think you've got it rough, and then also yep. because we're using Winston Churchill, he also said, "If you're going through hell, keep going, keep going." You know, yeah. and, and uh, so I, I want to switch gears. So I'm a leader. I'm a leader of leaders, Jeff, and I'm doing the self care things. I'm recognizing. I'm maybe I'm getting some better sleep, and I'm sitting. You know, maybe we're back in the office. Maybe we aren't, but. This could be viewed in a year, two years, whatever it looks like. And, and, and a a teammate or somebody who works on your team walks in the office, they close the door and they're like, boss, I'm done. Like I am struggling. Like I am tired. I think I'm depressed. You know, I don't want to use the word depressed, but I feel like really burned out. I got a shitty situation at, at home. My kids are doing bad at school. Like I, I have nowhere else to turn. What are. What, as a leader, one who genuinely cares about the folks, where, what can I do? Or what are some principles that I should maybe not do or you know, yeah. do no harm or anything like that, Jeff? What guidance would you give there? Sure.
1: Well, there's two things. I think the real nature of a leader is the type of leader you are in a crisis. But I think that there's another type of leader, which is what we call a grief leader, which is the type of leader that spe- that leads from emotions as well, that isn't afraid to be open to other emotions, but also express their emotions to show their humanity that, that, that they are um, just as human as the people that they are leading. And it's creating that empathetic relationship. I, I think that, um, you know, there's sort of generations and, and maybe maybe work moving out of it that sort of says to, you know, to, to ask for help is a weakness, to express some sort of um, emotion, is a vulnerability. And, and you know those things kill people. Those attitudes kill people. It stops people from reaching out. It stops people from connecting to their supports. It stops people from really understanding that you know, we're more alike than different. And to make to, to, to not know how to respond to a person who is in a crisis, we can all relate to that. And being able to just give that empathetic ear, and what I would say is just an unwavering support, you know being able to say, "What do you need?" being able to not tell the person what to do, but really help the person understand that uh, they have the capacity to know what to do, that um, they are really able to. Um, solve this problem for themselves. Maybe they just need some time, some encouragement, some support. But, you know, when people are going through str- crisis and, and stressful times, you know what they need? They need hope. Number one, they need hope. And if a leader can give them hope, wait, I've been through stressful times too, and I made it through. I'm sure you'll make it through too. The second thing is, I, I think they really need to have a sense of of connection, uh, that somebody, you know, understands what they're going through. Um, I, I think also that encouragement and instilling that, you know, they can solve this for themselves. They may not see it right now, but they are the, the, they are the best person to, to address this problem. I I can't think of anything more encouraging that a leader could say than, you know, I've got confidence that you can do this. And by the way, this isn't a weakness. I'm glad that you reached out and, um, you know, not to diminish what you're going through, but we've all been through difficult times and let us know what you need and be be somewhat flexible. Um, you know, what, what do they say that um, to replace a professional is about seven years of salary? When you lose that, it's one of the most valuable pieces of, of, if you want to think, equipment that you have. But isn't it amazing that in, in some industries we pay more attention to shining the equipment than we actually put into Um, really helping support the most vulnerable or the most valuable asset, which is, which is the, the employee. So the biggest thing I could say to a leader that, that, um, that, that says that is push through your discomfort. If you're not comfortable with people emoting, second of all, model from an example, make it feel people feel safe that, um, that they can come to you without judgment and then encourage them to find the way to, to work through this and be there to support.
0: Those you know, are the words of encouragement. From a, a selfish perspective as well for, for leaders, if you want to create a connection with a teammate or a, an employee that lasts for life, you help them through those yeah. t- difficult times and 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 uh, you know speaking of vulnerability mid-20s uh had a stillborn birth and you know it happened very rapidly and all these other things mid-20s absolutely zero awareness of how to handle the complexities of and, and i remember luckily my brain shut down for most of it i just remember certain pockets over that you know yeah. those those periods of time there but you know i remember thinking to myself picking out you know, a a casket and thinking, you know what? That's just, that's fucked up. Like, there's no way I should be doing this right now. Here's my point. I was working full time and my boss, Jan Pedler, this was, you know, over 20 years ago. She sent me flowers and she said, take off as much time as you need. And she said, you're just so you know, this is what you're entitled to, but don't worry. If we need to get you more time, we'll go right to the F and CEO. I don't want to hear anything more about it. That's 20-some 20, 20 years ago, Jeff, and I remember that distinctly, yeah. and I will go to the, through the wall with her, you know, if she ever asked me to. And so it's a real opportunity, you know, to, to create a connection and a bond and to, and to really tell people that, and demonstrate that you care, and not to minimize it as well. right? That's the other thing. Ah, you know what? It's okay. Just get some good sleep. Get some sleep. I heard yeah. Jeff and Daryl talk about it. Get an aura ring and read that book, and you know yeah. you should be good there. So or take
1: some time off because you're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> yes. You, know, get, yeah. you, you go deal with that. Go deal with that over there. Uh, don't come into the office type thing because the leader's uncomfortable. You know, there's two types of leaders. There's leaders that focus on the task, and there's people that fo- There's leaders that focus on relationships. And I think that what you're saying is that the, the leaders that focus on relationships are the one that you remember. And, and as you were talking about that, I remember when I was sort of in the, the sort of like corporate before I became a psychologist. And um, you know, somebody that I worked with that I didn't know very well sort of reached out and said, Hey, you're not yourself. What's going on? And yeah, I was going through a difficult time. And uh, she took me aside and said, Here, I'm going to give you the number of somebody. I want you to phone them. And I want you to promise me that you'll phone them. And you can share with me afterwards what you did, but tell you what, I went and saw this person. I was going through a difficult time. This person saved my life. And I, I just recognize in you that maybe you, you, you need some you know, somebody to talk to. Um, well you know, uh, uh, amazingly, that person connected me to somebody who became my mentor in psychology and uh, sort of coached and guided me through. And that's where I sort of got that taste for, you know, okay, wait a second, there's somebody within a business that recognized something because they went through. I don't know that I would have ever made the call. I don't know that I I didn't even reach out for help. The fact that somebody just recognized that I wasn't myself, cared enough to pull me aside and cared enough to say, I don't need to know what you're going through, but just to know, We've all been through stuff, and here's what I found helpful. And if this doesn't work, come back, and we'll find something else. And I still remember who that is. And um, you know, you know, just uh, amazingly that you know that that degree of compassion. But that is a relationship leader right there. She could have said, "I haven't got time for this. We have got tasks to do, whatever else." But no, there wasn't anything more important than sort of the, the, the people that that you know worked for that for her.
0: And I think it brings up another point too, as leaders, task versus relationship, your responsibility morally and professionally is to be looking out for people and paying attention, not just are they getting the deliverables done on time, but is there something else that's that's happening during meetings and whatnot? Because I would submit that that individual, if she wasn't paying attention, if she didn't care, if she didn't value you, she never would have taken the time to even notice and also taken the time to... To reach out, and I think that as leaders, again, this is a people business. No matter if you're building widgets, you're responding to to, to disasters, or it's ultimately a relationship, human business. And one other point, and then we'll move on, Jeff. too. Um, you know, I was in uh, in the Yukon for floods response, and you know, we even talked about it as a group. Uh, you know, everyone's struggling. The the energy normally when we deploy. It, we're upbeat we're excited to see each other again it's you know we we're, we're I work with amazing people, but we were just so done, so we talked about it and and an audience that literally would do anything to help one another, and yet we don't reach out to each other you know it, it's really interesting because we talked about it jeff, and you've had these conversations and okay. and we're talking we're marble slab white white horse, and I said, hey, you know what who who here would not drive to Edmonton at two AM in the morning to come and help. Everyone's like, F man. Like we were zero issues. We would do it. And yet we didn't, you know, we don't reach out. But I say that to say this, Jeff. Later on in that same deployment, I was done. Like I was you talk about hair trigger, temper and all that. I was just getting tired of people's voices, let alone even and and we're together all the time and all these other things. And so it was a Thursday on a longer deployment and I, we're all going out for supper and I just texted one of you know, our boss <clears throat> and I said, I'm out. I'm just going to take a break tonight. I'm not going out for supper or whatever. And um, he replied back, you good? I'm like, yeah, it's fine. And you know, I, I, pre- I just need some time. And I'll tell you out of the eight people that were there, all eight texted me within a few minutes. You good? You good? Do you want anything? Do you-? And, and it was unconditional. And it really showed me and reinforced the fact that people do care. They really, really do care. No one wants to see somebody suffer. I, I would submit maybe a few ex-girlfriends or ex-wives, but that's a whole <laughs> different conversation. But but you're actually, in a, in a weird way, you're depriving people of the opportunity to be of service, to help you, because that actually helps us feel good too, helping yeah. other individuals. So kind of we're, we're depriving them of that of that opportunity. So, you know, I'm, I'm just well, yeah, curious. You know, this
1: is, yeah, you know, this is a huge issue. So, um, you know, when you have a big organization and maybe you have an HR department or a disability management, somebody goes off, they submit a note saying, hey, you know, this person is coming back for three months. Um, one and I work for I, I do treatment for insurance companies for um, all sorts of different organizations, large and small. Number one stressor is that person is off and they come back and say, I haven't heard from anybody from work nobody even cares it's like they don't even notice me they don't even value me and then when i go to the organization and say hey why didn't you reach out oh well we we, we thought that was, that would be harassment we thought that we weren't allowed to and i'm like where where did you get that from well that's that's our policy or and i'm like show it to me well, well that's been our policy and and you know the, the relationship doesn't just stop or start when the person's in the office if that, per- if that relationship is important to you, it means that, that that relationship is when the person is there or not there. And, you know, the, a, 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 a leader, a relationship leader should make it part of their, their routine to check in on people who aren't there for whatever reason. Not to say, why aren't you here? but to say, hey, thinking of you, know, what do you need? And there's amazing ways that you can do it through e-cards or flowers or whatever, whatever it is. There's a way to be non-intrusive about it, especially in this day and age of communication. I had a client um, who was off and, and um, from the teaching world, actually, and, and talk about, a, you know, profession under stress right now, amongst others, um, who again just went off and and the teachers got together and signed a card and had somebody drop it off in her mailbox and she said, Oh my God, like I didn't even know that they knew that I was gone um because everybody's coping with it and, and that meant so much. And that was that was a leader that sort of said, Hey, we're gonna do this because we know this person is really struggling. And 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 as for you, you will never forget that that was done for you, that recognized you. So what I would recommend is, you know, this whole idea of you know, connection is such an important part of our physical and mental health, where we're creatures of, that need to be touched and nurtured and, and, and be around. I mean, we, you know, we, we really are social animals. Why is it that when somebody isn't well that we sort of isolate them and put them off and say that we can't talk to them for some ridiculous reason? Um, no, that's when we should be talking to them. And uh, I, I just don't know why that doesn't happen. There's no good excuse yet, despite the fact that when I ask, I'm given a hundred excuses, none of them valid from either a legislative, legal, medical, or social reason.
0: I absolutely love that, and part of it too is the awkwardness around it. Do you, you you talked about it a bit earlier. Like if I don't if I don't look, then I don't have to you know deal with this train wreck of an issue, and uh, but. I think it also speaks to the, the responsibility of leaders to know what those supports are organizationally as well. It's not good enough to yeah. say, yeah, I think we have an EFAP program. I don't know if we do or not. but and it let, may not be good me... enough
1: just to have an EFAP program.
0: True story. Yep, true story. Yeah, man, I love that. And so... You know, just in the interest of time, Jeff, I think uh, I I wish we could go on well for six hours and, and so on and so forth. But I think, you know, you've been talking a lot about what does right look like in terms of leaders. And so, you know, we've talked about how we can support an individual. How do we create a culture amongst our team? You know, it's one thing to be dealing with the episodes that are, you know, popping up once in a while here and dealing with that, but, you know, in this day and age, what, what could I do? I have 30 people, 50 people that are working for me and I can't interact with each and every one of them. I can't have each of them coming into the office and sitting on my couch or whatever. What what would you say in terms of guidance to create a culture of support and where it's okay not to be okay. But then the flip side is let's be honest. We can't have, honestly, the pragmatic part is we can't have everybody off anytime that they feel have feelings of stress, you know, like they're they're, And I, I'm not and I'm not saying that from a negative way. But I mean, just from a practical perspective, I think a lot of leaders are grappling with that, too. It's like, oh, man, what? Like, I'm going to lose my whole team. So culturally, yeah. Jeff, what what kind of guidance could you give?
1: Well, you know, uh, Daryl, I think you and I were uh, on, a, on a video um, exchange between leaders a while ago, and I heard something that I absolutely love. You're not going to change climate until you change Sorry, you're not going to change the culture until you focus on changing the climate, and I absolutely love that because we keep talking about this. This hot buzzword is change the culture, change the culture. Um, I actually don't believe that we can directly change culture. I loved what that leader said, and you know who I'm talking about. I do. That said, you need to change the climate before the culture will change. And so, just think about it. If we changed one half a degree every day or every week within the sphere of influence that we have, how dramatic that would be. And you think about just those acts of, of empathy, those acts of, of recognition, those acts of just connecting. Um, you know, I, I used to work at an office where I, I would walk down the hall and I would say, good morning to everybody. And it was just part of my habit. I love doing that. And the last office on the right, um, I would never get a reply back from. And so probably after about six months, I'd just that I was bothering that person, so I just walked by, and probably about two weeks later, my you know office door opens and and in walks this person saying, well, "What have I done that you stopped saying good morning to me?" And I'm like, "I thought it was bothering you. I thought I never got a reply out of your dark your dark office, so I thought it was just an intrusion." And um, she said that was the, the the thing she looked forward to every day. The other thing I'm going to tell you, just something really funny, is that um, my my secretary, um, she used to. I would open this cupboard every morning to sort of get the stuff out that I needed, and every day she would type, she would she would tape a happy bunny uh, calendar meme in there, and it would make me laugh. And you, you, those are the little things that start to change the climate, that start to influence the culture, which is just a recognition that we all need something. We all need something. Find what people need. They'll find what you need. And that's when you start to che- train, change the, the climate. Um, but I think that it's just recognizing that you're, you're dealing with the humans and um, you're human. And as a leader, how can you not relate to what others need and, and, and also what you need as a leader? And I think that just get back down to that human level of relating to people as people is really what starts to change the culture. Get to know them, get to know what they need, get to know what they like. They'll probably get to know what you need and what you not like as well. And I think that when you start to sort of say leaders are worried about the absenteeism, What I would say is ignoring it is actually going to increase the absenteeism. We have a huge deficit in certain uh, fields right now where people are, um, in some industries, and I won't name them, 40% of the people are off on either a WCB or a, uh, a disability claim. And if you ask those people why they're off, because of how management and supervisors are treating them, if they just let us do our job, if they just support it, if they just give us a bathroom break, if they just, if they just recognize that we're going through a stressful time, um, we'd be at work. But it is the climate that is actually causing people to go off more so than anything else. So you look after the climate and we talk about climate change all the time with regards to our environment. How is this really any different? Our workplace and where we lead is, is our environment. Well, guess what? make sure that the temperature is set right for the people that are there and you as a leader have the ability to set that temperature
0: and the responsibility and just so we're clear it's pete van dorp okay and his ego (laughs) is going to go massive shout out to pete oh i I won't want to talk to him after this anymore (laughs) But, but jeff thank you and and uh and pete was talking about the fire service and the notion of Hundred years of tradition, not imp- not impeded by progress. You know, the the, the yeah. emergency services culture is very entrenched. But within firehouses and halls and stuff, you can change that climate. And so, to move that over to the boardroom, you can change the climate. Yeah. Even if it's a culture of, like in healthcare, it's it, there's a particular culture there. But you yeah. you nailed it. That sphere of influence as a leader, you can control that temperature within yeah. your sphere of influence, and and that's you know, if nothing else start there. I really, really it's
1: not that it's not just that you can, it's that you have to Mm -hmm. as a leader, that is your responsibility.
0: Oh man. Oh, Jeff. So just to wrap up, where can people find you in terms of some of your work (laughs) and the eventual, you know, hopefully they never come face to face with you because that's probably not an awesome episode in their life, but where can they reach out to you or maybe learn more?
1: Yeah, you know, um most of my work right now is within uh, public safety personnel uh, emergency Service. It's really where I'm dedicating a lot of my time. Um we um I'm the clinical director of an organization called the International Critical Incident Stress Foundation Canada, ICSF Canada, which trains peers to support first responders in their workplace. And then we have a provincial network, uh, the Alberta Critical Incident uh, Provincial Network, ACIPN. Um, and if you just Google those things, um, you'll find the work that I do. You'll find the contact. And um, you know, to be honest with you, I, I don't have a high um, social media profile, websites, those sorts of things. People people tend to find me, and um, like-minded people. Um, I stay away from the people that don't like what I do. Put too much energy into fighting with them. But I do actually work a lot with like-minded people. And you can always uh, my my email address um, is my first and last name no space or period between at shaw.ca so Jeff Sitch at shaw.ca and yeah guess what i answer my own phone i respond to my own emails Um, i respond to the people that uh, do this important work i'll pick up my phone at three o'clock in the morning and people uh, especially their first responders can't believe that they're actually getting me on the phone and that i care enough to pick up the phone at three o'clock and you know um Emergency services is 24-7-365. How could I have psychologist hours if I'm there supporting them? So uh, I pick up my phone, and, and you know what most of them tell me is knowing that we can call you means that we don't have to call you um, because they, they know they can if they need to. Um, and as as a leader, Just being available has taught me so much that people respect that and they will work harder to not need to reach out. But when they do, boy, do they need you. But don't underestimate how being available to those around you that you lead um, really does, really does impact the the climate and the culture.
0: And uh, I would be remiss, and I mean this sincerely, as a helper, thank you for helping the helpers. And uh, even when helpers don't think they need the help, So thank you. And it is making a difference. It literally is 10 years ago. This conversation wouldn't even be had. Now it's a conversation that's starting and, and people are moving those yardsticks and through the, the efficacy of your work and many others that, that it's lending credibility and there's a trust that's has been built up now. And so thank you for doing the work that you're,
1: you're doing. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me and allowing me to speak to uh, what I'm passionate about and, um, uh, you know, again, I, I hope if anybody has any questions or anything like that, please do reach out. I'm happy to work with like-minded people and um, support you in, in um, maybe changing your climate.
0: I love it. All right. Thank you very much, Jeff. We appreciate your yeah, time. Pleasure.